Hey, South Bend City Church, Jason here, uh, welcoming you to the podcast this week. Uh, a couple of things that you might want to know about happening in our life together before we get to the teaching. Uh, first of all, on October 29th, you can save the date because in our gatherings, we're going to be celebrating family dedication. This is a chance for um, all kinds of adults who are caring for little ones, right? Whether it's parents, uh, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Uh, to go on the record with their desire to teach their their kids about the love of God and to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it's also a chance for us as a community to affirm these families, uh, to celebrate them, to make sure that they feel seen, and to say that we're going to walk with them. Uh, so for now, it's a save the date, and then later we'll let you know more um, if you're a family that would like to take part in that. Uh, but I want to encourage anybody who's like local in the area who can make it to be there for that gathering because it's important not just for the families but for all of us uh, to be a part of that. So that's October 29th. And then also this coming Sunday, uh, October, September 24th, uh, we're launching a new kind of table. So tables in general are ways that uh, we gather as a community in smaller groups around actual meals and shared conversation. And those take different forms in different seasons. But this version of the table, we're calling it the open table. And there's no commitment required, no sign-up required. You can come once or you can come every second and fourth Sunday or whenever works for you. Uh, but we're going to start offering it on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. We're going to try this for a while and see if it's helpful. And this is going to happen at Studebaker 112 as, as long as we're there before we move to the Tribune. And uh, right after the 11 a.m. gathering, so around 12.15 or you know, whenever the preacher shuts up, uh, that'll get going. And um, uh, you can bring some food for yourself. And if you want to bring some food to share, that would be great. And uh, that'll just go till about two, around 2 p.m. And um, we just hope that this is an accessible way to be a part of a table. Uh, maybe a long-term commitment to a table um, isn't right for you right now. Or maybe um, the idea of going to maybe somebody's home and you don't know them yet, maybe that feels a little bit um, undesirable, but you could just show up at Studebaker 112 after the 11 a.m. gathering and be a part of the open table anytime you want on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. Uh, lastly, um, as always, we are enormously grateful for all the different kinds of generosity that makes South and City Church possible, and that includes volunteering and giving wisdom and energy to what we do. It also includes financial generosity. And so if that's you, thank you. And if you want to be a part of that, you can just go to southbendcitychurch.com slash give and make an offering that'll help us keep doing what we do. Uh, this week is the second week of our series on the book of Romans, uh, but it's actually the first week that we're going to enter into the text and start working through it. Um, if you missed last week's teaching, which sets up the whole series, I would like, really encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, we gave some motivation for why we're doing this. We gave some vision for what to expect from it. And we gave some, uh, some tools to help you find your way through this series as we do it together. Uh, so that being said, uh, let's tune into the teaching from Sunday. Uh, let's say that it was, I don't know, roughly 50 AD, 52 AD. And you, you've heard that there's something strange going on in Rome. And maybe you live just outside the city and you want to go into Rome to see this strange thing that you've heard about. And the thing that you've heard about is that people that never belong with each other are with each other. Uh, maybe in your own life or as you've looked out upon the world, you've felt the burden of all the ways that we divide the world amongst ourselves, of who's in and who's out and which team are you on, which tribe, which faction. You've, you've felt the, the breaking and the burden of all of that. And you've heard that there's this strange grassroots thing developing there in the city among these followers of this man named Jesus. And so you go to Rome because you want to see what it looks like when people find each other and belong with each other across impossible lines of difference. And by the way, I'm talking about 50 AD, but you might feel some contemporary relevance to this, right? 
Like, really? Like, people can deeply belong to one another across those lines. People can find each other and welcome each other and love one another. Even though they come from different corners of culture and experience, they can honor each other and look for the best. Like, that can really happen. So you go there because you want to see it firsthand. And you get to the place where this small band of followers of Jesus is gathering and you're confused. Because when you get there, it's just one group. You get there, and while you were expecting to find both Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, what you find out is it's just Gentile followers of Jesus. And the reason is that just a few years prior, the emperor at that time, a guy named Claudius, has expelled all of the Jews from Rome. So you had a church in Rome that was Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus all together in community until this edict gets given by the emperor that pushes all the Jewish followers of Jesus along with all the other Jews out of Rome. And so you get there and you're kind of disappointed about this, right? Um, But then you stick around long enough and Claudius dies. And when he dies, his edict dies with him. And all of a sudden, all the Jews can return to Rome, including the Jewish Christians. Now, just imagine for a moment this scene. Uh, This is originally a Jewish movement. Jesus, being a Jewish man, brings Jewish followers with him to launch this movement. And then one of the miracles that happens early in the history of the church is that these Gentiles discover that the Spirit of God is with them too, and they have to figure out how to integrate all of that. And so the church becomes Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. But of course, the Jewish followers of Jesus got there first. And in a place like Rome, it would have been the case that the the Jewish followers of Jesus were the kind of OG followers. They kind of ran the house, right? So for at least a couple of decades, you've got a church that's predominantly Jewish followers of Jesus, which means that probably in spite of everything I've said about people finding each other across lines of difference, in spite of all the ways that they were learning to honor each other, it's probably the case that until they were expelled, there was a fairly Jewish gathering, mostly honoring Jewish sensibilities and Jewish history and Jewish understanding of this Jesus story, right? But then the Jews get kicked out by the emperor and the Gentiles basically take over the church. And then you're one of those Jewish followers and you come back to the church that used to be yours. Can you sense how complicated that would be? You come back and you're like, wait, wait, who, who's in charge here? Because this was kind of our house and we invited you into it. And then we got kicked out of the city and now it feels like it's kind of like your house. And now we're guests in our house, you can sense the, the conundrum of that, of coming back together. Do you feel this historical reconstruction, like what it might mean for the tensions involved for this community? Um, you've been there, maybe not quite in the same situation, but you've been in situations where it's unclear, like, whose traditions matter the most, right? Churches fight about this stuff all the time, right? Uh, one of the most predictable conundrums for a modern church, for example, is... Um, say you have a church that's been around for a little while and there's people who've been with that church for a while and for the long time they were the majority of that community and then something happened and a bunch of new people came in and those new people have different preferences and different views about how things should go and all of a sudden the OGs, the old timers, the people who've been around, all of a sudden they're outnumbered. That can create all kinds of schismatic, chaotic, sort of chaos-driven stuff in a community and it seems that that might be a reason that a guy named Paul wrote a letter to this church that he had heard that there was um, sort of a whole new wrestling match happening among this community about what do we do about the fact that, like, these brothers and sisters of mine have different ways of thinking about how to practice their faith. They even have different um, moral sensibilities, things that to them are culturally fine, to us are culturally out of bounds, and we've got to figure out how to make all this work. It might be that that's the conundrum that drove Paul to write a letter to these people to help them work it out. 
Now, um, there's another theory uh, that Paul was afraid that these false teachers who were traveling west were going to get to Rome before Paul got to Rome. And so he sends this letter to preempt the bad teaching that they're about to get from these other teachers. You're going to hear more about that theory later in the next several years that we're teaching on the book of Romans. <laughs> I really am kidding. I'm just afraid it, it's going to be a little while. You know what I'm saying? Um, we're going to hear more about that later. Uh, but this is an interesting reconstruction that what's going on here is Paul is saying, again, like, I'm trying to help you figure out how to belong to each other. I'm trying to figure out, help, you, help you figure out like, what is the, the theological, spiritual, relational operating system that's going to make real in your midst the thing that Jesus has already done for us, which is to bring us together in love, reconciled not just with God but each other. How are we going to make that real together in a way that honors everyone truly and deeply? He writes letters like the letter in Romans. And today we're going to actually start getting into the, the, the real text of it. So uh, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, we're going to work through the first seven verses today uh, just to see how Paul sets some expectations for the letter. Because you're going to hear in the first seven verses a lot of what you can expect from the rest of the letter that Paul wrote. And we're just going to work through this text today line by line and hear a little bit of what it might be saying to us. You guys ready for this? Awesome. Let's jump in. Romans 1, first verse here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. A couple of notes here before I go on. Uh, this is kind of a typical greeting in a letter in the ancient world. You would start the letter with the name of the person who's sending it. But he identifies himself in a couple of ways. A servant, uh, the word here, it, it actually has um, more fierce and difficult connotations. Uh, it's more like slave. Like his life belongs to Jesus, he says. And of course he thinks that the same is true of the people that he's writing to. And he says that he's called to be an apostle. Now, I don't know if you have any connotation for the word apostle. Maybe you've been around that word a lot or very little. Uh, it literally just means sent, that you've been like sent. Uh, but for Paul and for other early Christian thinkers, it has this heavy, heartful meaning, which is that he got it firsthand from Jesus. That's really the point of invoking this category for him. He's saying like, what I'm going to share with you, like I got this stuff firsthand from headquarters, right? Uh, this gets me excited, by the way. Uh, because as a student of history and theology and culture, like anytime you can get close to the source, that's just more interesting, right? Now, whether you agree with it or not, or whether you trust it or not, you can wrestle with that. But you can't really argue about the fact that you're close to the source when you're hearing from Paul here. And nobody really thinks that Paul didn't write Romans. So like you're right there close to the source. And he's saying, I got this straight from Jesus. And we've been, I've been set apart for this work to bring this good news, which is what he means when he says gospel. Uh, let's keep going. He says the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, this is God speaking through prophets in the Holy Scriptures, rewarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Let's pause there for a moment. Um, you're not going to get very far with Paul before he reminds you that the Jesus story is a Jewish story. This is really important, and it's going to set an expectation because we're going to hear a lot in Romans of Paul trying to like work out in the Jewish story, like in the history of his people, in their scriptures, how do they make sense of everything else they've heard from God and experienced of God and seen of God, and how do they bring that forward into their experience of Jesus. So just to set expectations here, you're going to hear a lot of wrestling with those older scriptures. Um, it's really hard to read Paul well if you also don't love and interact with some of those older stories that are told, and we're going to do some of that in the next few months. Uh, he says, uh, promise to the prophets in the scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Uh, if you don't know, David is a king in Israel's history, and he's probably the most important king in Israel's history. Uh, he's the king that when they, when they look back on David and David's reign with their people, 
they tend to see that as like the glory days, like the good old days, the, the days when we were the kind of people that we wanted to be and we had the kind of king that we wanted to have and we were uh, free and secure in our homeland and we had our temple without it being corrupted. Like this is looking back and saying that, that was an era in the past that gave us a taste of what we want. And it turns out that Jesus can actually chart his lineage back to David, which is really important for Jewish thinkers who are trying to work out the meaning of Jesus as a king in that line or a Messiah in that line. So I know that for some of us today, like, you, you read these parts of scripture and, like, you don't have perhaps, like, a deeply emotional connection uh, to the history of the Jewish people or to those texts. But at least helpful to know that for Paul and for a lot of his people, it's, it's supremely important to work that out because this whole story is rooted in that story, and he's going to try to help you understand how that all makes sense. He goes on, and he says, uh, who, this is Jesus again, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, this is a big deal for Paul. Um, it's really clear that like, if you dig into the earliest expressions of the good news of Jesus and why they trusted it, you're not going to get around the resurrection. This is like super important for these people. Paul says things like, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then what good is our faith? So every time we get to this kind of a thing, we have to pause for a moment and just talk about resurrection. Uh, because I just said like five minutes ago that this is a community of believers and doubters and everybody who's a bit of both. And I like that about South Bend City Church. And if I'm just being like super honest in my own life of faith and doubt, there have been days when the resurrection just doesn't make a lot of sense to me and days when I feel like I believe it in my bones. And maybe you've been all over the map on that journey too. Uh, it seems pretty clear that like for Paul, resurrection's at the center. It, it's, it's the epicenter of this whole story that he's telling. It's the epicenter of, of the radical change in his own life that led him to do the kind of work that he's doing. For Paul, it's like if, if there's no resurrection, like none of this other stuff makes any sense or works its way out, right? So let's talk about resurrection for just a moment. And I won't ask you to raise hands about who believes in it and who doesn't. Um, but I promise you, whenever you would raise your hand, you would find some friends here at Sopin City Church. Um, on the one hand, uh, I get that, like, resurrection can feel a little bit, like, really, we're still believing in that? Like, we're still... Oh, man. I just, sorry. I just had a memory that, like, when I was preaching years ago, I accidentally told the truth about a certain element of Christmas. I almost did it again. Um, uh, this is what kids' ministry is great for. That's why we put the kids in kids' ministry. Um, but I get where, like, belief in resurrection can be like, really, we're still doing that thing? Like, really, we're still believing in that kind of thing, right? Let me just, like, reason with you for a couple of minutes before we move further along in the text. Um, a couple of ways that I've just, I found myself thinking it makes way more sense to believe in resurrection than not. And you can evaluate these for yourself and see what they do, if anything, for you. Um, first of all, uh, if you actually pay attention to the people who argue against resurrection, if you really boil down a lot of the arguments from people who say, well, like, surely Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, a lot of the arguments basically go like this. Well, we don't believe the resurrection happened because resurrections don't happen. Well, that strikes me as the least rational, most superstitious, confusing stance in the world. To be a rational person is to say, like, we allow data to shape our view of reality. Right? And so uh, if you decide in advance that resurrections don't happen, then Jesus' resurrection is no longer data that you're allowed to include in your analysis. Right? 
But that's the opposite of like true uh, open-minded thinking, right? You don't rule out certain data in advance and then say, well, we don't have any data, and therefore these, these things don't happen, right? Um, another way of saying this is uh, to refer to what's called a black swan argument. Uh, imagine that your whole life you've seen white swans and only white swans. And then I tell you that I've seen a black swan, and you say, that's impossible. And I say, why? And you say, because I've only seen white swans. Well, like surely no amount of having seen white swans can preclude the possibility that a black swan exists, right? But it only takes seeing one black swan to know that, in fact, maybe somewhere out in the world there's such a thing as a black swan, and the rational, wise thing to do is leave yourself open to it, right? Um, that is just sort of a baseline way of approaching these questions about resurrection for me. And again, I don't know if that'll move you or help you or do anything for you, but that's just a starting point for me. And then the other thing, and I've said this many times, is um, if you don't believe that Jesus came out of the grave, I think there's a much um, heavier burden of proof on you to explain the phenomena that seem to emerge from that event. Uh, another way of saying this is like... Um, we may not be able to have line of sight. Like, it's not like we were there 2,000 years ago at that tomb to see for ourselves whether Jesus came out of that grave. We don't have video evidence, right? But nobody really argues reasonably that this early church didn't emerge from that event. Nobody, nobody's arguing that like, these letters that Paul wrote weren't written and that the communities that he, were, he was writing to didn't exist. And if you really like, get in touch with the character of the early church and everything that flowed with it, you've got something like a like a tidal wave flowing from something. Now, when a tsunami happens, I don't know if you and I can see the ocean floor and observe the moment when the tectonic plates shift underneath all of that water to move that water toward the shore. But if you see all that water moving toward the shore, and I tell you, deep under the surface in a place that you and I couldn't see, something happened, it doesn't sound crazy, does it? Uh, we may not be able to get like a direct line of sight on that event that these people swear happened that they encountered for themselves, but we do have some evidence that like a tidal wave flowed from that experience. And I just don't think it makes much sense to say that like we think nothing happened to cause all of that. And so for me, uh, when I read Paul talking about the spirit of holiness, um, who appointed Jesus son of God and power by his resurrection from the, from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, I sense that right here, you are at the sort of the engine, the, the power plant that drives Paul's entire world, that drives the church, that makes all of this possible, that sends people like Paul into prison because they believe in it so much, that sends others to their martyrdom because they believe it so much, and that creates a way of being with each other that's so radical in love and revolution, a way that says no matter how many times and how many ways we've been taught to hate each other and fear each other, we're going to resist all of that because we've found a power that's deeper and better and more true than the power of the empire that teaches us those things, and we're going to resist it because we think we've found something truer more real, more meaningful. That's, that's the energy and the engine that I, I hear and feel in Paul when he talks about Jesus resurrected from the dead in the spirit of power, uh, our Lord. Um, I think you're going to have a hard time making sense of Paul without that. And so even if you don't believe in it, which isn't something that I'm going to like shame you for or judge you for, I just got to tell you, if you're trying to make sense of all this, at least as you try to understand Paul's worldview, just know that this guy believes he met the resurrected Christ on that road that day. And he believes that he's in fellowship with other people who have met the resurrected Christ on the road that day. And it causes him to say, uh, not only was I wrong about him, but he's my Lord. And all of this is going to stream from the conviction that God is still doing the things that God did that moment when he brought him out of the grave. Uh, this brings us, uh, next slide. 
Um, this brings us to an important word that shows up a lot in Paul. Gospel. Um, this is a word that for a lot of us who've been around church our lives, this has been a really important word for us. Preaching the gospel, hearing the gospel, do you believe the gospel, saved by the message of the gospel, gospel music, praise God, right? Like this is a really important word for, for believers, for church people, for Christian people. Uh, but depending on like what particular brand of Christians you've hung out with, you've got probably different messages about what this word is pointing to. Now, some of you have been around, so hopefully this isn't news for all of you, but would it surprise you if I told you that Paul didn't invent the word? Let's start there. Gospel is not a word that he came up with. It's not like, um, you know, the Christian branding operation got together at headquarters and decided to call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because it's a word that they've come up with. Uh, there's, there's a deep history to this word. Um, in English, God's gospel goes back to something like good tidings or good news or good announcement. But it goes back to a Greek word that was being used frequently at the time of Paul. And the people who were using this word at the time of Paul were the Romans. So every time uh, perhaps a new emperor is born, a word goes out about this new emperor. And the word is the gospel. The evangelion, The good news that this new power has been born into the world who will lead us and liberate us. Every time the Romans show up and they uh, subjugate, dominate a new land and new people and fold them into their empire. They announce it as good news. The empire is here to save you, to make you free, to protect you. So that's, that's the sort of resonance for this word. This is a word about an empire and an emperor who shows up with the power of the sword to make peace, which is a big word for the empire. But the way they make peace is they kill everybody who doesn't agree with them. You get that, right? That's, that's how there's peace in the Roman Empire. Look, we're all on the same page. Why? Because you killed everybody who wasn't. That's how it works in the Roman Empire. This is a certain way of bringing a certain kind of peace. So gospel is being proclaimed all over the empire. And then Paul and these other followers of Jesus, they have the audacity and the creativity to grab that word and say, we have an announcement. We have good news about a fundamentally different kind of empire that operates on a fundamentally different kind of power that creates peace not through violence but through love. And he's proclaiming this over and over and over again. He says, I've been sent to give you this good word. I'm a minister of this good word. I'm a part of this work to say there's a gospel going out into the world that's fundamentally different than the one that you've been hearing from the empire. That's what Jesus is doing. And by the way, he's Lord, not Caesar. You feel the, you feel the guts in that? You feel the audacity in that? that that's the sort of uh, spirit of Paul proclaiming gospel in the world. To be like a gospel-believing Christian today Hang with me now. To be a gospel-believing Christian today might have less to do with your beliefs about a metaphysical transaction that happened regarding the accounting of your sin. I'm not saying that's not part of what the message is proclaiming. We're going to work this out again over the next many, many months. But the starting point, I'm telling you, the first thing people would have heard when they heard Paul say, I got a gospel for you. The first thing they would have heard is, oh, you have an announcement about a different ordering of our relations in the world? You have an announcement about a different way of being in the world? You have an announcement about a different way of making peace in the world? That, that's the starting point 
for these audiences. And then as they work out the theology of all this, all these other beautiful, rich things come along, which is reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of sins. All of that gets sort of carried along in the freight of this word. But the tip of the spear on it, the starting point of this word is, I have an announcement that it's possible to be together differently. To be in relation differently through love, not coercion. I have a, a word about a different kind of power that draws us toward one another in love, not through violence. That's the tip of the spear. And then everything else can come along with it. And we're going to hear over the next several weeks how Paul brings so many other beautiful things along with it. But the tip of the spear in the gospel is I'm here to say it doesn't have to be the way it is right now. Because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that can get really messy and gnarly and hairy and confusing for American Christians in the year 2023. I'm just going to leave that there, and then we'll work out later what that might mean. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, let's go back to Romans chapter 1. He then goes on to say, Through Jesus we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Quick reminder, for most of us in the room today, this wasn't originally our story. Right? This is something that we were brought into, invited into, a kind of divine hospitality that expands the story of God's people to include the Gentiles, which is most of us in the room right now. Thank God. Uh, but we find ourselves in this story, we find ourselves in this family as recipients of a profound hospitality on the part of God and God's people. That's like right there at the heart of the story. You Gentiles, you also have been brought along. And then we read this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And I've said it a couple of times now. You don't, no, Romans wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, I think. Uh, so in spite of me having just said that, I do think I could say right now, just for the exercise, what if you imagine the letter saying to all in South Bend who are loved by God. That's all of you, by the way, right? You know that. To all who are loved by God, who are beloved of God and called to be his holy people called to be agents of God's life in the world, called to be channels and conduits of the spirit of God in the world. All, that's all of you, every one of us in this room, everybody in the podcast, everybody in this community, loved by God and somehow found to be vessels of God, channels of God, conduits of God in the world, the holy ones. And then he says this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you've been at a Southland City Church gathering, you know that we like to end our gatherings by me saying, or whoever's up here wrapping it up, you know, grace and peace be with you. And then you all say, and also with you. And I think we found that to be really meaningful. Like for, for years now, for every gathering, we end with that simple blessing for one another. You know we didn't make it up, right? Uh, grace and peace is Paul's favorite way of, of speaking to people. It's like every letter he writes, he's saying grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. So let's work these out as a way of wrapping up this introductory session, uh, section here. Let's talk about grace for a minute. Um, grace is one of those uh, theology words that I fear can get kind of um, cheap if you've been around it for a while. I, feel, I fear we can kind of lose the shock and the beauty and the power of it. Uh, but right at the heart of this word is generosity or gift. Generosity gift. It seems that like for Paul, inside and out, he's come to believe that God's disposition toward us is one of generosity or gift. That with God, you don't have anything to earn or fight for or prove. 
that with God, you don't have to play quid pro quo. With God, there's no transaction. With God, it's all generosity or gift. And I think one of the reasons we keep losing this is it's so, so hard to hold on to it, to live with it, because it'll mess you up, right? I mean, you ever discover, like, when you're in relationships where there's a little bit of scorekeeping going on? You ever find yourself doing the scorekeeping in the relationship, right? I mean, at the far end, that can get really nasty and gnarly, right? But even what, what about the more sort of everyday incidental scorekeeping that we perform with one another, right? Like, oh, man, they had us over for dinner last month. We probably should have them over for dinner this month, right? Now, that might be great. That might be good etiquette. That might even be because you want to have them back. But do you, do you feel like the tinge of guilt there? It kind of travels with you in the back of your brain. Just a little bit of that, doesn't it? Right? This sort of um, gnawing feeling that nothing is really, truly, purely a gift. Because how would you trust that? How would you know? It just seems much easier, more comfortable, more controllable that we're going to maintain a sense of sort of where we stand with one another on the scorekeeping charts that we all have in the back of our heads. Because that at least we can make sense of, right? I mean, that at least you can keep track of. But true, absolute gift true generosity, on the occasions when you receive that, how does it make you feel? A little uncomfortable? Confused? Uncertain? I find it's hard for us to really trust and and rest ourselves in grace. It's a little bit like walking out on an ice-covered lake and you walk really, really gently because you're not sure that you won't fall through, right? You're not sure that the other shoe won't drop when you find out, no, it really was all along transactional. It really was all along about scorekeeping. It really was all along about about keeping track, right? And then, of course, the problem is a lot of preaching ends up telling you the exact same thing about God. We don't always say it like that, but I keep finding that so many of us, no matter how many times we hear the word grace, no matter how many sermons we've heard about the gospel, it doesn't matter. We, We keep coming back to this fear inside. And I don't know if it's with us when we're born or if it gets instilled by, in us by bad preachers or I don't know, but like it just seems we keep coming back to this fear inside that with God, it surely can't be all gift. It surely can't be all grace. Or at best, we've been told that the grace or the generosity is an exception to the character of God, but mostly, mostly God is against you. Maybe God's carved out some small loophole so that God can tolerate you and make room for you, but mostly God is against you. It's almost as if um, preachers think that the best way to help us appreciate the grace of God is to make us terrified of God first. I just don't buy that. Uh, It's been said that institutions will preserve the problems to which they are the solution. Preachers will preserve the problems to which they are the solution. You know? And so I get sometimes people in positions like mine, preaching from pulpits like this, have spent a lot of energy trying to convince you of just how unworthy you are, of just how terrified you'd better be of God, so that later when I tell you that I have a solution to your fear, later when I tell you I've got the loophole for your problem, later when I tell you that I've like created more demand for it, right? Uh, did you know that diamonds aren't scarce? Do you know this? Uh, the, the whole like, market around diamonds for weddings was created by a couple of diamond companies through a really clever marketing campaign that said two things. One, every engaged woman needs a diamond in her, on her finger, which was not a thing that happened before they came up with a marketing campaign for it. 
I'm thinking of my roommate right now who just got engaged and he's probably wishing I would have told him that earlier. Um, <laughs> and see, my understanding is they're not actually scarce in the natural geological planet that we are living in, but there's a cartel that put a lockdown on the supply, which ratchets up their profits and keeps them in control. And I don't think that's a bad metaphor for some of the preaching that happens in the world about God and gospel. But Paul says grace upon grace. That's his first word about this, grace, generosity, gift. It's as if he thinks that God will sustain us in love and spirit in the same way that he sustains us in the flesh. That in the same way that you take a breath right now and probably don't think about that breath as something for which you owe a debt. You just receive the breath. That somehow perhaps the gift and the love and the grace of God is a little bit like that. Uh, there's this phenomenal line that Paul writes in another letter to a church in Philippi. Uh, the letter's called Philippians, and he says this. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. I love that. So that every act of faith, every attempt to grow in holiness, every effort to heal, every desire to obey the things to which we are called, every bit of it is simply living up to what we've already attained, what's already been given to you. There is no earning or fighting for it. It's already yours. Now we just like live up to what we have attained, uh, which perhaps explains why Paul uses the other word that he uses over and over again. He says not just grace, but peace. Peace. Paul, uh, being a Jewish thinker, is going to have um, a big category for this. For he and his people, they, they would speak of shalom. Shalom isn't just, um, you know, the absence of conflict. Shalom isn't just that we are being nice to each other. Shalom isn't just that we are barely getting along. Shalom is this robust vision of right relationships in every direction. Uh, with humanity and God, uh, among the members of the human family, between humanity and creation, by the way, uh, Old Testament is very concerned about our relationship with the land. And it is every bit as much a matter of justice as are the relations that we have with one another. So in relation with everything around us, but also uh, the, the peace of knowing that you are reconciled to yourself. Knowing that you've been brought home to yourself. Knowing that you don't have to run from yourself or be divided against yourself. Big, powerful word. Uh, there's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga, which is, if anybody was going to be a theologian, it's a guy who was born and named Cornelius Plantinga, right? Uh, and he says this. He's written a book about sin where he says, Biblical peace, what scripture calls shalom, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. So Paul is going around announcing gospel, saying, like, I, I have an announcement to make about the fact that it doesn't have to actually be this way. And in fact, in some strange, kind of mystical way, the way things are isn't even the way things are right now. Because it looks like Caesar's on the throne, but I'm, I'm saying Jesus is already on the throne. So there's this strange kind of coexistence of the empire of violence and the empire of peace. And somehow they're both there, but who knows how it all works. Um, but he's going around saying, I have a gospel to announce about this. And it calls us to a way of being with one another that resembles that good news. A just way of ordering things in our midst here, right? Uh, I heard another preacher say this, and I really like it. Like, um, good preaching probably has to vacillate between uh, grace and peace. They aren't contradictory, but they are in tension with one another. 
Because grace says, like, you have nothing to prove, nothing to earn. You don't have to fight for it or strive for it or make it happen or prove anything here. That's the, the truth of grace, the generosity, right? But the preaching of peace is a way of saying, hey, friends, we have some work to do. Not to earn it, but because we've been given it. We have some, some healing work to do. We have some hard conversations that we need to have. We have some effort that we ought to put in to, to living in accord with the world that God has already birthed. Where God seems to say, I'm doing this, but do you want to join me in it? I'm creating this, but you can create it with me if you want to. I want to get you in on that. I want to bring you in on that. Now, um, at the risk of uh, painting in strokes that are way too broad, uh, in my experience, there's like two kinds of Christians. There's like grace Christians and there's peace Christians. And rarely do the two meet, if I'm being really honest. Uh, again, broad strokes for sure. Uh, but even among the members of South and City Church, and I'm a part of this dialectic that I'm describing with you here. I'm a part of it myself, right? But even among our own family here, I think we have those of us who, um, who love, celebrate, and see the truth of the grace the gift that we have nothing to fight for or earn. Uh, but we might be a little slow to move into the work of peace. Uh, perhaps afraid that it starts to sound a little too legalistic or a little too disruptive or a little too effort-driven. Um, that can be a place that we naturally land. And then I also find that the among, among the members of our family, um, I think it's also easy to, to move toward the work of justice or peace in a way that loses track of the distinctively Christian way that we are here to pursue those things. Um, if on the one hand, those of us who are really steeped in this good news of grace are perhaps a little bit naive about the power dynamics that shape our world and how corrupt they can be, sometimes I fear that those among us who are um, really tapped into the conversation around justice or putting things back together are naive in a whole other way about the power games that they're playing or thinking that you could play with fire and not get burned. Um, this is hard challenging discernment work for us to do as a community of how it is to pursue grace and peace with one another. How do we create a family, create a community where everybody belongs here, everybody belongs, while also simultaneously having hard conversations and saying hard things about the world that we live in right now that might leave some people feeling offended about the things that we said. I don't know. <laughs> Which is why we're working it out together in real time, hopefully with the spirit and each other trying to figure this out. But what I'm certain of is that a church isn't a church unless it's pursuing both grace and peace. And that the good news isn't the good news without both grace and peace. That like the, 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 the peculiar genius of the gospel that we are here to live in and share loses its genius unless we, unless we wrestle with and work out together the strange, um, the strange beauty of living with grace on the one hand and peace on the other, doing the work of both generosity and justice in the world. I'm certain that's our calling. It's all over the scriptures. It's all over the faithful lives of the people of God. And then how we do it is something that we'll just keep figuring out as a community. Uh, I said at the beginning last week as we were getting all this going that one of the many reasons we're doing Romans right now is because of the season that we find ourselves in as a church. Uh, I'll reiterate in case you weren't here. And by the way, if you missed last week's teaching, uh, I, don't, I don't often do this, but today I will say, please go back and listen to the podcast last week. If you're going to do Romans with us, if you're going to hang with us, please go back, because last week put some important stakes in the ground that are going to frame our entire approach. So please listen to last week. Um, but one of the reasons that this is important for us right now is that uh, sometime this winter, uh, we're going to move into the Tribune. 
And I, I, I've said it before, I don't want to make too much of that building, but I don't want to make too little of it either. And um, as we go from this scrappy little insurgency tucked into a rented space behind a gate in a corner of town that nobody knows how to find, to one of the more prominent facades in the heart of downtown with a story that's already being told in the city at large, I think we're going to discover that we are asked for more, like that the, the bar is raised on us a little bit, that we're going to have to grow up a little bit, that we're going to have to become a little more of what we have always been reaching for as a community, as a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And we're not going to get it perfect, and we'll never get to the end. But I think it's a good time for us to think with one another about how do we live up to our calling as a church? And how do we ensure that the others who might find their way to this family, once it's much easier to literally find your way, because <laughs> there's not like a dead-end, closed underpass that Google has never discovered for some reason, right? Um, when it's easier to find your way to our community, do they find a community that is living in the good news of the gospel, a declaration that things don't have to be the way they are right now, that a different order is emerging, that a different power is at work, and that the people who are learning to live by love are living in both grace and peace together. That's the, the hope for us. Um, as you walked in today, maybe you already know this or you've seen this, but over there uh, behind the curtain, there's a, a picture of the Tribune, and there's a, there's a newspaper dispenser there, a box. Um, and then there's a table there with a couple of things. One of the things that you'll find on that table is the consecration prayer that we prayed at the Tribune not long ago, uh, sort of a, kind of like a groundbreaking there, right? And at the end of this prayer, we pray together, may we grow in the grace and peace to which you've called us for the sake of others in our city and world. And I hope this is a prayer that we return to over and over again, not just collectively, but even on your own. Uh, they still, we saw these prayer cards if you want to take one home and put it someplace so that you can make this a regular prayer for you as we prepare for that space. And then we also have these blank cards. And these are for you to write the prayer that's on your heart for our future in that place. Um, if you've been in Trib uh, already, you might know that uh, when you enter through the loading dock area with those three big garage bay doors, the, the center garage bay door will eventually be our front door. And that'll be the threshold that everybody walks across to enter that building. And it just so happens that the way the, those loading docks were built, there's a carve out below the surface of the floor there. Right now it's filled with dirt, but later that's gonna get filled in with concrete. And so we've worked with our contractor to ensure that we're gonna be able to take all the prayers that we've written and put them in some kind of box and then actually bury them there at the threshold so that for the forever future of that building, anybody who walks through those doors as they cross that threshold, we'll also be stepping across the prayers that we've prayed for that place. And so maybe you want to pray for um, just who we grow into as a community. What are the things that you hope we're faithful to? What are the things that you hope people experience when they're with us as a church? What's the good work that you hope we'll do? What do you hope people will feel when they walk into that place? What's the other good effort that you hope will happen there, maybe beyond the life of South and Study Church with community partners? But I think the more that we can invest ourselves with prayers for that space, the better it'll go. And so if you want to, even today, you could grab one of these cards and write a prayer before you leave and then just put it in that South and Tribune dispenser box there. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but I think sometime in the next few weeks it's possible that that's going to get filled in. So this might be um, like your last chance to do this. So I don't want you to miss a chance uh, to write a prayer and have it included there in the, in the, in the threshold of that building uh, for all posterity's sake. Um, I hope you feel there's a lot at stake in Romans. Paul's doing a bunch of work for us, and we're going to try to like, open ourselves to it and let it work on us. 
I hope these don't feel like lectures as much as invitations. And today, like, I hope what you heard is Paul is saying, um, I've got it from the source. I've seen something that has convinced me in my bones that a different way is possible. I'm here to announce it, and I'm here to invite you into it. And when you live in this new way of being, you will discover both grace and peace at the heart of it. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Um, as I kind of look ahead to next week, uh, it just strikes me that a, uh, a text that's going to help us belong to each other across lines of difference and even different moral sensibilities is especially important before the Ohio State game. <laughs> so you can pray for me because I'll be at that game with my father who's wearing Ohio State gear this morning at church just to <laughs> flaunt it early. Many differences that we are learning to navigate together. Uh, may you hear the good news, the gospel, that announcement that animated Paul and so many others to live radical and beautiful lives, lives of love and self-sacrifice, built on the conviction that things don't have to be the way they are, no matter how inevitable the empire makes itself seem. Uh, may we be people who grow up in both grace and peace, living in the generosity and the justice of God, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.